0: Growing up in poverty and in an abusive home, David Bootsumse poured his energy into athletics. While running track and playing football in high school, he was introduced to powerlifting by a teacher. David would join the Delaware State University football team and unsuccessfully try out for the NFL and Arena League before going all in on bench press. The pain of David's childhood would fade away when in 2016 he broke a world record and accepted a gold medal while representing the United States at the Pan America Championships in Costa Rica. This isn't just a story about an accomplished athlete. David is a survivor and gives back every day through his job as a South Bend police officer and dedicated father. Hello everybody, welcome to the C4 Podcast. This is your host, John Messina. As always, I am here with Coach Andekka. Co, how are you today?
1: Good, good. How's everybody doing?
0: Doing well. Um, I'm very excited about today's guest. He's fresh off his sixth Arnold Classic, and I'm among good company here because both these guys that I'm talking to today have been to the Arnold Classic and competed in it. And it's it's what they like to call the Super Bowl of, I would say, weightlifting or muscle type events. Co um, is a bodybuilder. David is a power lifter. So I'm excited to be with both of you guys today to talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Co, to tell us a little bit about his experience at the Arnold Classic and introduce David, Co.
1: Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, for me, the Arnold Classic goes back to, like I started working out in the 80s. And the the number one contest back then was the Mr. Olympia, Mr. Universe, right? But in 89, Arnold uh, partnered up with John Larimer, Lorimer, and uh, in Columbus, Ohio, 1989 started what, what was the World Pro Championships, which turned into the Arnold's, uh, I think, the next year. And at that time, it was bodybuilding men and women's. And that was it. You know, so it's grown, you know, to, to powerlifting, martial arts. Uh, I think there was a, uh, David, did you get to see the, the, the slapping, the slapping contest? Yeah, I, I, showed, I, I, showed, I showed that, that to John.
2: That was the first so they got like, slapping,
1: women, power slapping contest. They mm-hmm. got everything there. But... I I just remember you know going there as a fan in the '90s, and then I got to go there as, as a sponsored athlete and and work, and 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 work the booth uh, for Optimum Nutrition, and, and and then like when I disappeared, uh, you know my, my son was born. I, I kind of just retired from the sports. You I'm I'm never going to go back to the Arnold Classic unless I compete. And it so happened that I was able to compete in the inaugural. Arnold Classic for Classic physique in 2018 um it, it was weird because the Olympia started in 2016 and you would have thought they were going to start the Classic physique division in 2017 but they waited a year and started in 2018 so I was kind of like half retired and I had to like I just you know I just got to do this to just just for the honor of it right so I actually didn't show up at, at, at my fast, like nothing like I did at the Olympia or, or, or other classic C shows and I, I you know took a respectable tide for 16th which is like <laughs> there are like 30 some guys and you know they just stopped judging after that and everybody just gets like one number, so that, that was my experience there so now our guest David Butsomsi, man this, this guy's a champion powerlifter so that, that's why we wanted uh, him to come on who's also I think John mentioned six times in the Arnold Classic, so that that that's amazing. So, um, David, tell us about uh,
2: you know, I don't know. T- tell us a little bit about the Arnold. The Arnold's uh, has always been like like you said, like you mentioned, it's it's a uh, it's the mecca. It's the Super Bowl of strange sports and martial arts, and you know um, everything that that Arnold created then back in the late eighties has now has transpired into a worldwide, you know, phenomenon um, yeah. amongst amongst what's going on in the fitness industry more so now than ever before. And is growing even more so because with social media and everything else, it's given uh, such a big, giant, giant platform. And Arnold giving us a platform for yourself, for myself, and many other athletes, it's, has been such a, humbling experience you know it's I've heard about the Arnold's but never in a million years would I ever expect myself to even be on stage I'll still pinch myself today you know you you know you're part of something but you it's it's almost like in disbelief you know because you're like this can't be true you know this uh, thousands and thousands of athletes I'm up there you know what I mean like it's just a surreal feeling so the Arnold's to me is just a a very great time, you know, for myself to just look back and say, wow, you know, of all the hundreds and thousands of people that has paved the way for a lot of us, I get to be part of that, you know? So very mean. Yeah,
1: for sure. For sure. You, and you're you paving the way for, for powerlifting. There's, you know, mm-hmm. you're the only, and that's why you're in a hall of fame, and there's no other uh, Laotian athlete that has done, uh, that has done well in powerlifting, much less go, Or become or I think now you have to be invited. Yeah. I know I think for me to compete, I had to be invited. Yeah. You know, so it's not like anybody can do the Arnold. You have to be invited. So but I think John, John's got some questions for you to to start off the podcast here.
0: Yeah. Well, we know you didn't just walk in there and, and start lifting. Um your story goes goes way back and we always like to start at the beginning. Um, with your family in Laos tell us a little bit about, about your family origins in Laos how they got to the U.S. and so from forth what I,
2: from, from what I recall what I I can actually remember my my family actually is a scatter all over the United States as Cole can 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 definitely attest to this because coming from Laos you really almost had to dig deeper because our history is wasn't wasn't like how many other folks that came over you know to America it's it's not like it's been documented or recorded so you get bits and pieces from so many different family members uh head of the family you know and kind of like you want to piece the puzzle together so from what I can recall and remember is uh my father um come from the Champasak area uh I think it's in the southern Laos area okay well, right along the Mekong River um I from what I remember from what he had told me um, he was in the military. He got captured uh, uh, by the Viet Cong during the war, and um, he was in he was a prisoner of war for about eight months with a fellow guy. Um, they got captured, and then um, I was told that during the monsoon weather, they would they would dig uh, into the ground a bit at a time, each time, each week, each month, until they kind of made a a bravery uh, uh, escape through the mud. And then they were able to um, get away from the Viet Congs. And then that's when they got crossed over the Mekong River into Thailand and they got rescued by the military and whatnot. And he was put in a refugee camp there. And then him and my mother uh, met while they were in a refugee camp. And then um, they got sponsored. through a US agency and they came over to California, and then that's when I was born. So imagine I had just escaped war-torn, you know, Laos during that time, during the end of the war, they were heavily bombed, you know, and most, most people don't don't recall the the uh, bombings of Laos, you know. I, I think it's the the only country in the entire world. Through history of war is the most heavily bombed.
1: Yeah, we we, we hold the record for that. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. that's not so a good they came record. Over to California, and that's when uh, I was born in '81 in French Camp, California, and uh, most of my family members um, settle right there in the Sacramento, Stockton, Oakland area. As some family lives in Oakland right now, in that that area in the Bay Area. So. Um, so that's how they came about going from Laos to the US. So John, John, that's your neck of the woods, right? Yeah, that's
0: my neck of the woods. I went to high school in Sacramento and, wow. and you are our third guest from that area. There's a very large Lao community, very large, yeah. actually even Kim, Chris Dim who was on Bodybuilder, Cambodian, large, large Southeast Asian community yeah. in, the, in the area for sure. So David, you started off there in the Central Valley of California. And then you ended up moving to the, the East Coast, the, the whole opposite side. Tell us about your childhood and kind of growing up in Maryland and that relocation.
2: Uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm just going to be as sincere as possible. Growing up was pretty tough, um, very poor. You know, we live uh, from place to place. Um, mom didn't speak English at all. Mom and dad actually split up um, right a little bit after my sister was born. I had one sister, um, she was born in 83. And then um, shortly after that, uh, my parents uh, just went their separate ways and mom just took me and my sister to to Maryland. And that's where we stayed. Um, During that time, my father was a very, very well-known musician in the uh, Lao community. And he was like a big advocate uh, that most of the, I think in the Lao community, you have like one person who's like the voice of basically that entire community, whereas if they needed uh, something done or they needed to go to somebody, it's kind of almost like in Laos where you have the, the village chief. So he was kind of like that amongst amongst the family members. I, I believe he was the oldest one. So uh, so he stayed back on the West Coast and did his music thing, he toured. Uh, He played uh, in the Molum Molum band, you know, he played, you know, so he went around, you know, touring the the West Coast and and Texas, actually, um, and and playing with his band, and mom, mom and us came to Maryland, and we grew up poor, you know, we grew up not having a lot, Uh, mom couldn't speak English, you know, Um, I can recall back Living in the project housings and the apartments, you know, Section Eight at the time, and being picked on, and a lot of racial tension was going on at the time, because you know, you're talking about the 80s, you know. And yeah, mom went from living in Laos to coming to a foreign country to herself, and at the time she had me, she had me. She was only 16 years old, you know, and a young mother did speaking English and didn't know how to read or write. So I can only imagine how tough it is for, especially for a young teenage mom. And not only that, facing that, but facing the, you know, just the everyday life, trying to deal with, you know, how do I feed my kids? How do I go about seeking medical attention if I need it? Not having much of family, you know, um, ties around that area. Um, it, it was pretty tough. So my childhood was, uh, was pretty, um, you know, we get into the whole, you know, growing up abusive. Uh, I faced a lot of that Faced domestic violence, you know, within the home. Cause mom was, uh, with my stepdad at the time. And when she met, you know, my stepdad at the time. And so I have seen it all. So, um, Growing up childhood wise was, was pretty tough on me and my sister. But you know facing all of that has made me definitely who I am today. So
0: Yeah. So you were very active in sports though, when by the time you got to high school, was that like an outlet for you? Was that is that why you became such a great athlete, mate
2: I would say so. Um, athletics was was my outlet because I felt like there was nothing more and, and Kale, you can attest to this again you know in, in our culture moms and dads and family don't care about sports it's about hey if you're old enough you're gonna go work mm-hmm. you're gonna work and bring money you're gonna help the family and that's all we saw was it, it's a it, it's more of a I don't think they comprehend sports like the way we, we do yeah um, they look at it as a waste of time a waste of money a waste of Waste of life, you know, they think about you getting older, why don't you go to work because, you know, you need to come help the family, you know, that's just the way it is, it's always been that way in the Asian culture, you know, especially in the Lao culture, the very, you know, the discipline and, and everything else that stands behind it is pretty rough, you know, um, sometimes it almost feels like you, you get disowned if you don't follow suit, you know, so, um, yeah, it definitely was flex was my outlet because I just felt like that was my only way to feel like I was free from all
0: of that, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, plus, funny, plus
2: dealing,
1: you know, dealing with, uh, uh, the, the, the environment that you're yeah. in, I'm sure there weren't too many, I don't know where there a lot of the in that area where you grew up or were you, did you kind of stand out and then get, you know, picked on in that sense?
2: I got I got picked on a lot to be honest. You know, I was a small kid, you know, I was I was actually it was super quiet. Uh-huh. And they uh they figured at that time I had talk, you know, I had a communication um issues because you know, I would go to kindergarten, and go first grade, but I wouldn't speak. And um I wouldn't I would I would read and write and do all those things. But when it comes to speaking verbally with a teacher, I wouldn't say anything. They thought I was mute. Uh-huh. So they, they had me in counseling, um, during school and they would have me one-on-one with uh with a therapist to try to see if i can if there were any issues and there weren't any issues i just it came down to trusting and i wasn't trusting of anyone you know besides one teacher you know Mm -hmm. that's that's what it was because it it just seemed to me like you're you're so vulnerable at the time you know you're only you know six years old you know five six years old and you're vulnerable and you're terrified because one you're you're in an environment where it's already abuse you know as it is you're coming from a very tough early early on childhood so everything around you seems like everyone's gonna attack you so I just kept to myself
1: yeah yeah man. same here man I was small you know I mean I was starting to learn English so I I was born in Laos but came here when I was four Mm -hmm. so as I was slowly learning Laos I got put into kindergarten. So now I got to have to switch gears. Now I had to learn English, you know, so uh, the Lao language wasn't that important for me. It, I, I had to survive now, you know, in, in the American school. So I had to learn uh, learn English. That was my focus, but, and just being that oddball, you know, and I, you know, and it kind of sounds harsh to say now, nah, but just being different. You know, being different and uh, you know, hard to make friends when you are not speak in the language. You know, hard, hard to make friends when you know you're you're so little. You know, yeah. we're we're both on the on the shorter end, but you know, we got we we got the muscle. But we we're on you know when we we're four or five years old. Um, I, I kind of pictured you probably pretty, pretty you know small too. You know, and um, man, it was just the world was ruthless. You yeah. know, Made fun us the funnel the way we look made fun of our our names and, and all that and it's just you know we had we had uh you know to me back pretty similar to you my outlet was uh was bodybuilding just working out man i just i just wanted to work out so people leave me alone you know put on put on some muscle you know but uh tell us how you got into powerlifting what was it that you loved about powerlifting it's like i think you played other sports and, and like you played football too right
2: Yeah, football. I ran indoor and outdoor track. I did a little bit of wrestling, but. Okay. um, So what, what drew you, what drew you
1: to powerlifting then? Where, where was the passion for powerlifting?
2: I got introduced to powerlifting um, by my math teacher at the time. Um, I I think it was like my beginning of my junior year. Um, He had seen me, uh, I had him, I had him as a teacher. He was like, hey, you know, I'm starting up a, a bench a bench press team uh, I would like you to a powerlifting team I would like you to go ahead and think about it and I had no idea what parlor thing is I had no idea what weights and, and all those things were and he, uh, he invited me to come watch one of the meets and um, that was that was being held and I, I got there and I watched I watched all these kids, both girls and boys you know big small medium you know all walks of life we're just competing. And um, that was my first chance looking at how it was. And then um, obviously I was playing football. I was the smallest kid on the team, but I had heart, I had hustle. I was the fastest guy on the team. But I think with the struggles of everyday life has propelled me at at that time anyway to work much harder than everybody else you know and um it wasn't just going to be given to me so I was in a weight room I was working out working out and then he he noticed that hey you look pretty strong for a really small kid and that's when he was like why don't you just trust the process and just give it a shot so I was like all right you know I'll give it a shot. So I register, sign up for the bench press meet and um, took first place. (laughs) So that's, so that was when I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. And it took first place, never did anything like this in my life. And that's when the confidence grew more. And then just him being there, almost like a father figure drew me into the sport. And that's when he said, if you can just trust the process, trust me, then you're going to see daylight at the end of the tunnel. He mm-hmm. said, you're, you're you're small, but, uh, you know, your progression and, and everything else is is basically the sky's the limit for you. So I trusted him, and that's how powerlifting grew on me in high school. And so, how, how old were you here when you uh, did your first uh, bench contest? I think I was 15 years old. 15 years old. I won first place a couple of times. Uh, nice. And then um, my senior year, I, I think I took – Runner-up in the state of uh, Maryland, and that's when um, I was like, "Man, this is uh, this is pretty cool, you know, to be able." I think I, I think, the most I did at that time, I was only a hundred and let me see, I think it was in the weight class of one twelve or one fifteen, and I was doing two twenty-five, you know, at that time. Wow. Yeah. So you can imagine how small I was doing two twenty-five. It meant the body weight of that's double, that's yeah. double your body weight. Twice as
0: twice his weight. Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. So yeah.
2: that's how it started.
0: Well, so you also played football and you were a small guy and, and you were able to parlay that into playing in college. And what's interesting about your college experience is you also went to a historically black college, Delaware State University and played football there. Tell us how you chose Delaware State and a little bit about your football experience there.
2: Actually, uh, when I when I um, when I went to Delaware State, I actually went to a junior college first, um, just to uh, fill out the whole college process. And um, the counselor there knew Tony Dungy, the head coach, on a personal Ooh. level. Oh, wow. So I'm sitting and I'm sit- I can remember like it was yesterday. I'm sitting there in in her office, and I was like. Ma'am, I was like, my dream is one day to play in the NFL or even get close to it. I, I understand I'm, I'm small and everything else. But if I could just get one chance, one opportunity for a coach just to give me a shot, I, I, would, I would absolutely be grateful. And she's like, son, do you know who Ward Dunn is? I was like, yes, I do. I was like, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, how he played back Everybody knows Ward Dunn. At the time, I was playing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Came out of Florida State, small back, very scat back, and um, very quick and elusive guy. And everybody doubted him, too, at the time. But he was just an uh, explosive running back. And then she goes, hold one second here. Hold that thought. I'm going to make one phone call. And I want you to sit right here. I'm, I'm going to put it on on phone. So I'm saying nothing about anything. Like, she never told me she who she was calling. She's like, I got somebody I want you to speak with. So I'm sitting there. And then... Uh, she uh she calls and um voice comes over she he was like hello and he was like hey coach I got somebody here on the uh uh, sitting in my office and um his dream and his dream is to play in the NFL one day but he just wants to be able to have a chance in college to play ball somewhere he's thinking about transferring um and we're getting ready to do his classes for him to transfer in the spring season to be able to, to hit spring football and everything else and um and then um, he's like, son, this is Coach Tony Dungy. Hmm. And I was just like in starstruck mode because I was like, that's Tony Dungy. And uh, the one advice he gave me was he like, don't worry about what college you go to. Do not worry about all the accolades and the stars and everything else. What you need to worry about is your education. Get that, get that out of the way. If you're good enough, the NFL will find you. So don't worry about anything else other than work hard, you know and 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 do your studies so from then on it was just like wow they gave me the motivation so then I transferred into Delaware State University knowing that it was a historically black college knowing how tough it is anyway for me being a minority uh athlete to even come step foot in a division one you know college atmosphere so when I transfer in I got they gave me not the school itself, but players and my peers at the time gave me absolutely no chance whatsoever. Like, who is this Asian dude, you know, coming over here on campus? I, my experience there was good and bad and kind of scary at the same time. Um, not anything the, of the university's fault, but it was more about you're going to a black college, but you have the, the demographics of many student athletes and other students who coming from Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philly, Jersey, Um, you're coming from a lot of the East Coast cities that are known for, you know, uh, you know, coming from even bad areas, um, East Orange, New Jersey, you know, coming to school, but they brought a lot of that baggage there, too. So, I mean, I was, you know, it was a lot of racial tension that was going on at the time. Um, I got called all kinds of names. I wasn't really accepted or appreciated until um, I raced against one of their star football players and I beat him. Mm. That's when everybody started like, oh, wow, Asian boy got wheels. And then from then on, it was was, uh, much respected on their part. And again, that's when I got welcomed into the brotherhood. They're like, hey, man, you're just like us, but you're just a little lighter lighter on the skin tone. (laughs) (laughs) So... But, you know, before my college uh, season started, I, I was a walk-on. I didn't get, you know, I didn't get a scholarship offer or anything like that, but I was a walk-on. So anyone who knows what a walk-on is, it's so tough to walk on at any division to play sports, period. It doesn't matter if it's football, basketball, you know, soccer. It's hard enough to be able to even get an opportunity. So at the time I walked on, I made it. And when my name came across the media guide, Says you know freshman running back you know five foot five five six oh, I forgot what they lit label him at 150 pounds running back from uh, Ocean City Maryland I mean I'm um, Berlin Maryland at the time I was just my jaw just dropped because at that time anyway I know the doubts and not only your own community but just everyone in general saying you'll never make it. You didn't, you didn't have a dad. You know, you're going to be a loser all your life. You know, you're too small. You're too this. You're too everything. So with that, when I seen that media guy, I took it home. I said, and I showed it to my mom. I said, look at this. This is your son on the media guy, you know, of a division Division one college football team. No Kun Lao in, at that time anyway, that I know of has ever done anything like that. So I just felt like, I wanted a million bucks, even if I didn't play or suit up. That was enough for me because of the battles, you know, that I had to, you know, go through just to even say you belong in society, you know, at the time. So, but right before all that happened, um, personal issues came about, family issues and whatnot. So I had to, I had to leave Delaware State to go to Jersey. So it was just it was a, yeah, it was a big mess. So I will not get into all of that. That's a little too sensitive.
0: Yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, uh, you did make the team and based on our, our in-depth research uh, we found that you are the second known division one football player. There were a couple others like my, my cousin, you know, Lao American football player who played division three a little before you. And then another, another two guys, um, as well. But yeah, you were the, the second that, that at least we found so far. So anybody listening, if there's any other others out there, let us know. We're trying to document this as part of the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. So well, so you so after Delaware State and and after that, um, you know, I know you played a little bit of semi pro football, but then you really powerlifting became your sport of focus, and that's when things got big for you you. So tell us tell us where you went from there after college.
2: Um, after that, I, uh, I went to the NFL combine, um, scouting combine. Um, I, I did it twice because I was at that time. I was still trying to fulfill the NFL dream. Maybe, maybe if someone would have seen me or, you know, just get a glimpse. It's some different set of eyes, you know, it would have been great. Um, I went, I, I tried out for the uh, arena football league, um, did that, tried out for the, uh, went to the NFL combine did for all 32 NFL teams, um, size I mean size at the time size was just a big factor so I just felt like man you know if if I can't play in the NFL what's the next you know level after that so semi-pro became um, the next step so I went down play semi-pro for a couple years enjoyed it Um, great experience you know with the guys and stuff like that and then after that I just decided to hit the weight room even harder that's when powerlifting came back into my life and this time it was by a world champion Samoan um at that time we call him Big George George Lilifano well-known guy um in the USA powerlifting uh family um drug-free unfortunately George didn't make it and he passed away um a couple of years ago right when I first started in the powerlifting again he was my coach a dear brother to me and I miss him so much every day because it, it's, it's just different you know when you have somebody who is in your corner he was the first guy that brought me back in and said you know train me properly train me with the right techniques the breathing techniques and everything else to get me ready for USA powerlifting which is the you know as everybody knows, it's USAPL. Um, it's the premier federation, drug-free federation. Um, and he's the one who said, hey, man, I see a lot of talent in you. You can really go far with this. You just got to believe, brother. And when uh, I last talked to him that, that Sunday and then that, I think that Tuesday morning he had passed away in a car crash. So I got the news when I came home from work, got a phone call. Hey, George is gone. I was like, man, what are you talking about? And my, my buddy Thomas Davis at the time, uh, another world-class, um, one of the most best benchers in the world, um, told me that, hey, you know, George has is, George is passed. And that's when my whole world just – I almost gave up powerlifting just because of that because it was such a detrimental thing Especially when you're trying to find a, find your way, and you finally you finally got that kind of like I kind of like when Mike Tyson and his trainer and his coach his mentor when he died it, Tyson just kind of you know in a wreck. So I owe everything to George George L- Lily Fano um, right here in South Bend Indiana um, is the one that got me back into the game. And show me that this is the premier federation. And if you're gonna do it, do it drug free. And that's that's one thing that um, I hold dear. It's it's very much important to show people that you can lift and be strong um, in powerlifting and not have to go that route. You know what I mean? So
0: yeah. wow. Well, tell, tell us about
1: a- tell us about how you got into the Arnold Classic. So. Um, you know talk about your first one and, and, and which one was most memorable was it this past one what what was your uh, how, how you did you get into competing at the Arnolds and,
2: and which one was most uh, memorable to you um, so in USA powerlifting you have to qualify so you ha- so you got you got the national championships you got the bench press national championships so each year once you, get into a meet so you have a 12 month calendar year in the season so once you you have to get a qualifying number um that you meet either it be at nationals or um or a state level competition once you qualify for that you have to go through a selection process which is the invitation process so that's when you just sit around at the end towards the end of the year if you get invited you do if you don't you don't so you have to see there's hundreds and thousands of lifters all across 50 states, all across the world that's fighting for only a limited, so, you know, selected spots for a, an event at the Arnold's. As you, you, know, as you said earlier, there was only three uh-huh. lifters or 30 something um, guys that was at the Arnold's with you. I mean, it's not like they're inviting like 500 people. They're only inviting a very few selected folks. Uh-huh. You know, that they deem at that time, pound for pound, best of the best. So that's how I, that's how I first got invited was in, uh, I believe, I went in. So 2016, was it the first year was it 17? So it. I don't remember. I think 2000, 2017. I think 2016, I came in as a coach. And then 17, I, I, that's when I started at RUN. Um my most memorable is being on stage and Arnold Arnold himself was on stage and was filming me. And then when he was and he was filming me and he was also Snapchatting my lift as I was lifting, and I had no idea it was Arnold because I'm so focused and so zoned out. And there, and uh Gino, the announcer was like, Hey, Arnold was right there. He wants to talk to you. I was like, Arnold, who? He was like, the Terminator. He was, he was like, Terminator? on Schwarzenegger's niggas right there. Turn around. He wants to talk to you. Go over there. So I was like, oh. I was just like, man, I was just so starstruck. So I walked over there. It was on stage in front of everybody. Then he interviewed me for a, a short bit and then asked me, you know, how I feel about, you know, competition and stuff. And uh, I told him how I felt and stuff. So I, I took a couple – they took a couple uh, shots photo of me and arnold together then i was in one of the videos um uh, with me and arnold up on stage shaking hands and everything else and uh i think that was my most memorable one because who gets to you know shake hands with a terminator right yeah <laughs> alone be up there um but yeah i think that's my most memorable one
0: well, you Co you met arnold also right
1: I, I got to stand get my picture taken with him. Oh, I kind of snuck in and uh, he was visiting. Like at that time, I was, uh, I was working for Optum Nutrition. I was a sponsored athlete and he would come over and, and take pictures with, with a lot of the companies, right? So word got out that, that he was coming. I just got, I just snuck past everybody, got right in line right next to him. And he had Franco Colombo uh, next to him. So I, I got to be you know right next to those two who are like the the Mr. Olympia's from uh uh the 1970s. Oh, so yeah. that that picture like that that's one that my dad's most proud of. Like he you know he he doesn't brag too much about my victories and stuff, but every time people come over, he's got that fishy blue hat up and he's got that uh you know he's got a picture of me right next to Arnold. He's all like that, you know. That's uh that's cold next to Arnold. Yeah. But uh it's just, yeah, I, I can't even imagine, you know, having, you know, being able to get interviewed by him and, and being on something like a, a Snapchat. So this is,
2: yeah, because this is like
1: 2004, <laughs> this is 2004, we didn't have uh, social media back then. Yeah. It was just like they took the pictures and you waited for it to come out and, you know, yeah, that so was always. Yeah. So I, I know you took second, you got a bronze medal this year. Um, do you plan on continuing do you, when you're coming back next year? Or, yeah, or my goal,
2: yeah, my goal is to, uh, now that I'm in the master's division, so, um, okay. so now I'm in the master's division, um, a couple of days ago when I checked the rankings, I'm ranked number one in the country in the wow. master's division. So awesome. um, rankings can change, you know, from time to time, month to month, depending yeah. on pe- who, who competes, who doesn't compete during the year. So if you compete more often in the year, then of course, you know, you hold your ranking either at the top or, you know, vice versa. So, um, right now, my goal is to come back and win Masters. Um, that's my goal. I feel mm-hmm. like from from what the U.S. coaches have told me before, they're like, man, you know, I, I feel if you were to switch from being a raw lifter to an equipped lifter, you're going to take it, mm-hmm. you know. So, if you understand what the equipped lifter is, where they have the bench shirt on. Bent
1: shirt, yeah, yeah.
2: So they said that your raw is already, your raw lift is already high enough because you're already beating other masters. Why don't you try the equip lifting and you can you can elevate the most I ever had in my hands and I pressed up was 612 pounds. Wow. But so that's in the that, shirt. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's me not even knowing how to. Really use the bench shirt the way these guys train for. I have never trained like they do, so mm-hmm. I don't understand the shirt fully. But if I was to be able to have a coach to train me in a bench shirt, I'm I'm sure you know I can definitely do great you know in quick lifting, So, so is that yeah. is that
1: something you plan on doing next year? Or are you want to stay raw?
2: Raw has just been something that I wanted to. My goal was to chase a certain amount at raw and then at the equip lifting i feel like you know from what i mean these are u.s national coaches who's telling you from what they can see an outsider looking in if you were to train and equip compete and equip you would become world champion so that that should tell you that Maybe I should take their advice, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah it, it's interesting, David, because, you know, we were contacted by a local newspaper in Maryland after we published your induction into the Lao American Sports wow. Hall of Fame. And that guy there talked about that same thing about how impressive it was what you're doing raw and where you could go <laughs> in right. equipped. And I didn't know anything about it. But yeah, he, he, he was a, that reporter happened to be a lifter also. Oh, and, wow. And he, okay. and he mentioned the same exact thing to me before I, I, uh, you know, passed on that article, but you also speaking of the U- Team USA coaches because you represented the USA, right? Went to Pan America Games down yeah, in Costa Rica.
2: I went to uh, Costa Rica. That was probably one of my highlights of my career so far. Being in a game not that long, compete like com- competing at a higher level, um, and to be selected. You know, there's so many great lifters across America, and just to it, and, you know, just even for the Olympics, you know, just to even be selected or even be an alternate is, is such an honor in itself. And, two, it's so difficult to make a team. And for them to even think of me like that was uh, – it took me by surprise because I – you know, before George passed, he's like, I can see you making the, the U.S. team one day. He's like, just keep it up. Mm. Not thinking that shortly after that, I make the U.S. team, and I went down to Costa Rica – and the, I, the first thing I asked coach was, "What's the record down here?" Because I want to break it. And as uh, soon as I seen the record, I said, like, "Yep, yeah. I said I'm gonna break it." So went down there and I broke the inter- third international record for that federation. I broke that record. I set a new record. And then on my second lift, I rebroke my own record and set a new record. So the record today still stands. Right? Um, yeah, I won a gold medal for the U.S. team. And us as an overall U.S. Uh, US national bench uh, powerlifting team, we went down there, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think we won like 21 gold medals, broke wow. records. We just absolutely went down there and just annihilated all those countries down there. And I got to stand up on the podium with the U.S. national, you know, uh, anthem playing in the background, holding up the U.S. flag. And all I could think about was every – single thing that has ever gone wrong in my life growing up all of that poverty and everything else just kind of went away mm. you know because it's the the dream of feeling like you made to like i tell people all the time maybe it's not maybe it don't mean much to a lot of folks but to you and i coming from where we come from and our background and our our people that is our super bowl Oh that yeah, is, yeah, that is our lottery ticket. You know, we it might be minute to a lot of people. Oh yeah, it's just a competition. But to 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 us, it's more than competition. You know. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's why we,
1: you know, John and I created the Hall of Fame uh, to bring awareness. You know, because even our own people don't understand. Like, it's not easy what we did. Right. You know, I, I mean, I I, I won. Uh, when I turned professional, I didn't just win my weight class, because you know there's lot, there's weight classes. I could always stay in a lightweight. You know, I could been, I'm smaller. So, you know, what five I could have competed at 135, 140 and been abandoned weight my whole career and and turned professional that weight. When I turned professional, not only did I win the middle weights, which was up to 176, but I won the overall. Mm-hmm. So you figure there's three other weight classes above me, guys yeah. that weighed I think the biggest guy I beat was two eighty two. Oh wow! I, I thought he I thought he wanted to kill me when when he did win. <laughs> I, was, I was so afraid of that guy. He's scary, man. But uh, yeah, man. So we just want to get the word out there, and, and with the podcast, just sharing our story of, you know, wow, you became you know you're you're a great powerlifter. But what's even greater is the adversity that you had to overcome and go through to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, some people are genetically gifted and maybe they're born in the right families and, you know, maybe their dad was, a, you know, a football star or they became a football star, their brothers, and, you know, you hear, you hear about that in, in sports. But man, to overcome, you know, what we had to overcome, you know, and sometimes the adversity of just, you know, what broke my heart always was the adversity from our own people, right? Yeah. I mean, when, when when your own Laotian buddies, you know, make fun of you, laugh at you. Well, you think you're going to be something? What, you're going to work out and get all the muscles, you know? Like, yeah. who are you? You know, I, I, And then they would say that in Laos, right? So it would hurt more. You know, they, they didn't say it like that. They said it in Laos, man. I mean, you know, they, they threw in some swear words in there, you know, you dog. You know, uh, kind of that reference, you know, so that hurt, man. But yeah, that, that's why that's why John and I created this, so we can, you know, share uh, you know, share these stories, man, and make it known that it wasn't easy. Right. Yeah, but it was worth it, right, to us, to you, to me, it was worth
0: yeah. it. You know? Yeah, and that's, you know, when we came up with the Hall of Fame, David, I don't know if you know the story, but I'm Italian. I'm an Italian-American, and and we have an Italian-American Sports Hall of Fame right here in Chicago where Co and I live, Right, and, and I've always been really proud of it, and there's people telling these stories for our people, but when my daughter, you know, my wife's, was born in Laos and came over at a very young age. When my daughter went to the U S Olympic trials as a swimmer and our family, the big Lao family from the area came out to support her and send her off. I said, I said, you know, we got to have the same thing for the Lao people that we have for the Italian people and and that we need a hall of fame. We need to recognize these athletes and we need to tell these stories behind them. And so that we can inspire others and bring pride, and kind of help people get over what you guys were talking about, right? And and get everybody supporting each other. So we started it and you were one of the first people were inducted. Um, so we're honored to have you in it for all these incredible accomplishments. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, but with that, we know that there's a lot more to you than athletics and you're also a police officer in South Bend, which is a very honorable thing. Tell us what you like about that job and and what drew you to policing.
2: During a young age, like like I was men- mentioning earlier, you know, I, I you know, growing up in a harsh environment to begin with, and then two, um, seeing, you know, your mom get beat up almost on a daily, you know, I can remember when I was 11 years old, you know, my stepdad at time, beat her up so severely, knocked her out unconscious, then dragged her into the bathtub, knocked out unconscious, and then... Turn on ice water to wake her back up to beat her up again. And at that time, I'm 11 years old. I'm this small kid, and I, I just sat there. I, I just, I didn't move. I just sat there and watched it, like, because I was so numb to it because I see it all the time. Like it didn't, it bothered me, but it didn't bother me in a sense where I was. It, it's like it's weird how to explain it. Like you're sitting there, like it's happening, but it just, you know in a sense of, here I am as a kid, like, what am I supposed to do to protect my mom? But I'm this young kid, maybe I'll, I'll get beat up or get killed too. So seeing that, seeing the abuse over and over again, you know, got me when I seen my stepdad get taken into the squad car, you know, by Maryland State Police, and then he got t- taken taken away. It just a light bulb in my head came in, and and it was like, I got to do something and be a voice for not only my mother at the time, but for many other people that face the same situations. So many families go through this day in, day out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. we are going to have a perfect family and think everything's great and dandy, but the domestic violence, either be verbal, physical, whatever have you, you know, uh, substance abuse and all that stuff. And we all fight our demons, but we all, you know, have seen this one way or another, either be a relative or, you know, somebody. So mom was like, you know, pressing on the law enforcement, I, I would love for you to one day be a police officer, just like that police officer came to help me today. And that's what stuck in my head, like, you know, becoming a, a police officer was something from early childhood on, and that stuck with me all the way through, and um it took me a long, long time to become a police officer because at 25, that's when my son was born. And right in the middle of that, prior to him being born, I had just, I had applied for so many uh, federal agent jobs and police departments and everything else. And I finally was getting through with the city of Philadelphia. And I was so you know ecstatic and then I, was told at the time by my son's mom hey i'm pregnant and that's when i had the ultimatum of either you don't become a police officer and you stay here and take care of your son or you leave and you sign off all your rights so i decided as a father at the time the right thing to do was you know what i'm just gonna put my career on hold I'm going to stay here in Indiana and take care of my son. that's what I did. And I put my career on hold for that mom. So I didn't become a police officer until 2016. I finally I finally fulfilled that dream. And then at that time, um, the one thing that I wanted the most was to see my father, who was absolutely, um, I didn't have a relationship with my father at all. Um, I only met him in passing when I was little. Um, since he was in California, and then he moved over to the Virginia area, Manassas. And um, I didn't see him again until I moved here to Indiana. And that's when um, I only had like a nine month relationship with him and then we parted ways. And then when he was on his deathbed, um, I told him I was gonna fulfill that dream of becoming a police officer. And that's when he said, that's one thing I want to see happen. And 2016, I went ahead and fulfilled that, but, it, it hurt the most because I know that man would have been so proud, and I wanted him to be able to see that, you know, and he wasn't able to. So that means a lot, you know. So um, I patrol third shift, uh, Sabin, Indiana, one of the most dangerous cities in the state of Indiana. Um, we deal with a lot of gangs and drugs and violence here, um, shootings on a daily basis, so that's what I deal with.
0: Yeah, what is it like, you know, having been that little kid, right, watching their stepfather got pulled, taken away for abusing their mom? What's it like when you show up and you see that kid that was basically you at one point when you respond to that?
2: I give them the utmost um, respect and courtesy because I put myself in their shoes. And every single call that I go on, I don't rush a call I take my time because if it takes me 10 minutes great if it takes me 45 minutes an hour even better because I want everyone's experience and I, and I spoke to this young lady the other, the other day who wanted to go strip to make money but she didn't understand or comprehend what she was doing and her mother arguing with her trying to stop her from leaving a one-year-old with some stranger so she can go make fast money. You know, I got on a level, long story short, but I told her, you know, you're worth more than that. And I'm not saying that whatever those girls do for whatever reason it is, it's not my business, but I'm not calling them bad or anything like that. Everybody has their reasons. But I said, you know, you're a young mother. Think about it. You know, you're leaving your son with some stranger that that's a friend of a friend of a friend. God forbid something was to happen and you come back and we knock on your door and say, hey, your son is found dead. Because we all know what happens in situations where a guy or a boyfriend or somebody, you know, doesn't like kids or whatever, and he's crying too much or he needs milk or something like that. And they get frustrated and they beat the kid to death. You know, I've seen it all, you know, I've seen uh, these folks that I that I, you know, have the experience with, I always tell people the general public is uh we get to experience people's you know life at that moment anyway at the lowest of the lowest you know um so I empathize with them you know and uh, that's one thing that that I, I do on every call is I put myself in their shoes and and if that was my sister or you know, my cousin or my friend, how would I want an officer to treat, you know, then, you know? And yeah, you know, it, it is tough. It's a mental mental toughness and, and a lot of times it's emotional. But, you know, we all have to be able to be strong for them even though most may not like us for what we do or, or the color of uniform that we wear. But a lot of times I think they're just lost. You know, they just need help, you know, in different ways. So I, I'm glad to be able to be that savior for them, even if it's that, that moment, you know, so. Uh, I tell you, it,
1: David, uh, so, such an amazing and, and incredible inspirational story. Uh, everything that you had to experience, you know, growing up, being a champion, power lifter, you know, doing what you do to protect and serve. You know, I, I definitely back the blue. I, I, you know, I mean, without the police, man, whereas, whereas, uh, you know, your your safety, right? But I, you know, I also grew up, you know, my dad was in the military, a uh, lieutenant colonel in the army. So just having respect for, you know, uh, you know, military and officers and stuff. But man, let's switch tunes though, man. Let's talk, let's talk about your kids. You know, let's talk about the future Coming up, I see I see posts of your boy in football. I see uh, your daughter in jujitsu. Let's uh, let, let's hear about them.
2: Right now, my oldest Noah, he's definitely uh, he's on the rise right now, and um, I can't me and his mom can't be any more proud of him and, and what he's done. Um, as far as being same situation, but in a different situation, but kind of the same, you know, always being overlooked. But, but you can't bypass his success and what he's done so far, you know, and that's why I try to I keep preaching that what you've done so far, most kids do not have as much success as you are due to the fact of either parents not being there or not affording the opportunities. But, you know, we invest a lot of time. Um, and patience and, you know, everything we give our kids, you know, it's it's been from the heart, you know, because, we, you know, knowing where I come from, I've always told myself that one day that I become a father, uh, I will give my kids the world, you know, and uh, Noah right now is the first one that's going to be out the door. He's a freshman right now. Um, football is his specialty, but he also plays rugby and he runs track. Wow. Um, so he's a three-sport athlete, and then on top of that, he trains with me, and he also trains uh, with his two personal coaches.
1: I, I, I've seen him lift, and he can could, he could have a career as a powerlifter if he wanted, you know? Hey, that's what we am see about.
2: videos. Yeah, me and Mom <laughs> would say, hey, you know, you can do this, right? He's like, <laughs> he was, like, very enthusiastic about it. Um, he said he would like to, but he said he wanted to wait until after the season's over. I was like, you can definitely – do something pretty big in, you know, in, in the teen age Yeah, yeah. No. Um, Then um, football right now, he's a, he's a recruit, so hopefully we can – whoever's listening out there might have connections or whatever, just bring him in and just like, hey, can – I have a kid that can really – you need to see this kid and make him work out or something, you know, and maybe, maybe he'll be a, a good fit for somebody out there, you know. Um, my uh, other daughter, she's in jujitsu, so yeah. – my Alexis and she's won a couple of silvers, uh, a couple of golds. She just started jujitsu a year ago. Um, She's my tough cookie because she's, uh, she was my baby before my baby was, you know, now he's three years old running, running rampant around the kitchen area here. But uh, Alexis, uh, she's more of my stubborn one, but she's, uh, she's also uh, an active and very, uh, uh, I would say physical one of the bunch um, she's getting ready to try softball now so she's getting ready to pick up on softball and play that uh, my other daughter is in cheer and tumbling she's the diva of the bunch and she's getting ready to go nationals here and uh, I think nationals in July so um, yeah house full of athletes we call them boots camp and then the three-year-old, he's just basically following his little uh, his brothers, you know, whatever Noah's doing, he wants to do. So he wants to go ahead and uh, get involved in that too. So um, I just, I'm just blessed to be to be honest uh, John Kale, man. Uh, just just knowing that you're starting to see all the kids kind of just become their own person, you know, and it starts at home. So, we're blessed. So a lot of hard work. Definitely, you know, definitely for you to see them,
1: you know, to see them grow and flourish, and to to know that you've been able to give them, you know, uh, a support system that you may not have gotten. Like I, I know I didn't get that. I mean, man, I would have got some support from my family as a kid. I, I wonder, you know, I might have gone a little bit further, or who knows? (laughs) Right. Um, We'll never know, but the best you and I can do is pass on everything, you know, the best John, you know, um, all, all of us as fathers, we can pass on to our kids, you know, just that, give them that drive, give them that, you know, discipline, you know, teach them that, that nothing is impossible. Like they can do whatever they want to do, just set, you know, set their hearts on to it and, and, and do it and love it. You know, exactly. so that's, that's something that they are getting that, we probably didn't get a chance at, or, or didn't even know about,
0: you know. Right. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, three of us. We all have uh, kids that are about sons that are 15, I think, right about there. Right. My son's 15. Co. I think your yeah. son. was he? 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My 15. And, yeah, and, and, and Noah's yeah. probably about that age too, right, David? If yeah,
2: he's so, 15, he'll be 16 yeah. in uh, September. So yeah, they're probably. all
0: they're all right in there, and and you know one of the things I look at is. We, we can all we
1: can all talk, to, but when when they start driving, we can always talk. Well, there, to each he, other. My son, he's
0: got his permit, man. He's he's getting there. Oh,
2: yeah. yeah, mine's gonna get mine's gonna get his soon. Oh man, I mean, yeah, my son's get he's finishing up driver's ed as, as we speak. Oh jeez. Yeah.
0: But you wonder how the fact that they don't have a lot, like all of our kids, right? They don't have a ton of adversity um, per se. Wow. They they have issues in adversity, but I almost feel like maybe sometimes they need some, 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 some obstacles to overcome. Not that you want (laughs) to create those or anything, but, but uh, you just see it. It, It's easy to get complacent, right? Otherwise. So so we got to figure out ways to keep driving them. So they do chase their dreams, you know? Yeah, for sure.
1: Hopefully they can have an appreciation for what we did and what, and what, and you know, what roads we had to travel. You know, sometimes it may not click right now when they're younger, but I think as they get older, more mature, they're all like, dang, man, he went through that, you know. So right now, you know, my, my, they don't get it, I don't think, at, the, at this age now. But it's just like me and my dad, like, I didn't get it until I was older, you know, yeah. the road that he had to travel to, to get us here. And, yeah. and uh, you know, when I was a kid, Arnold was my hero, right? But then, you know, as I got older, my dad became a hero. Right. So, you know, the perspectives change as as we get older and wiser.
2: We talk about it every day, you know, you know, we we have sit down dinners, you know, and we we explain to kids. I hope you guys truly comprehend what me and mom has done for you guys, because not too many parents can do the things that we do to ensure that you guys have all the windows of opportunities for you guys. You know, when you guys need something, boom, mom and dad's got it. You know, we make it happen. You know, hey, I need this, boom. You know, dad's got it, or I need to go here, boom, mom's got it. You know, it's 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 not like it's not like we're spoiling them, but we we want to ensure that every opportunity seized. We all know how how it's just like competition. You don't seize that moment, you let that moment pass you by. It's over. Can't get it back. Yeah. So I always tell my son all the time, even right now, you know, when he's getting ready to go down to Orlando here in a few weeks, um, you got to make opportunities. You know, you can't wait for opportunities and um, you got to be a dog out here, you know, especially with how the world sits, you know, uh, to be successful. You know, I always say to my family all the time and my favorite motto is without struggle, there's no progress. Yeah. You got to struggle, you know, to understand and be grateful for that progress that you've made. You know, like, John, you hit it on the note there, you know, I don't think our kids in total understand um, or they need adversity. And you're absolutely correct on that because, you know, they they don't, they're not going through what we've gone through. It's almost like they have it so much easier now. And like you said, you know, I don't think they understand fully. Um, what it all means or entails you know it's like it's like when, when I look when I asked Noah I was like do you understand what you got to go through right when you go down and you compete in Florida he's like yeah it's yes but the comprehension of, of really truly understanding I don't think it's there I don't think it's there so I think that's the hardest part of trying to figure out as a young person trying to figure out fighting adversity like how we fought adversity you know
0: yeah for sure Well, David, this was an incredible interview. Um, We really appreciate you coming on and sharing. It's very brave of you to share your story. But the reason we're doing this is that people need to hear these stories, and that, and that, and that it'll inspire others. And so, thanks for coming on.
2: I hope so. I mean, so for so many years, you know, even on social media, I have said, "Man, it's like there's nothing—not one single Lao person anywhere." I mean even when I was trying to reach out to like uh, a few folks in the loud community and you just drew blanks because not one single soul was interested. You you were always bypassed by them. We just couldn't get anything. Like I always wonder, was there any type of platform for us? And until you guys came on board with this, I had yeah. no idea. Like it's amazing to read these stories and check in on these guys and follow them like, wow, man, like, this is incredible and even uh guys at work they were so moved by all of this and they were just like this is so incredible because had it not been for you guys nobody would even know anything like this even exists i didn't know majority of the folks that were inducting to the hall of fame you know mm-hmm. were even we doing anything like that you know mm-hmm. so it's incredible
0: yeah i mean the, the one we get the most uh Wow's over is the bull rider, Billy Soxoda. I mean a bull rider, right? A cowboy.
2: Right. <laughs>
1: oh. <laughs> but the, la- the ladies love them. The ladies
2: love them.
0: It's those tight yeah. jeans. Yeah. <laughs> it's <right>. the
2: hat <laughs> or something. I don't know. Tight jeans and the hat. They look good in them jeans. Huh? Yeah.
0: Oh. Yeah. And and you know, the, the a lot of these athletes, what's really cool is the coolest thing for Ko and I out of this is we had no idea. It's meeting all these cool people, like you and like yeah. everybody else. And and, you know, for example, Scott Fadevong, he's a former pro football player, went through the college recruiting process, and now is a coach and is sending actually several of his players to big D1 schools. One oh, wow. of them just signed with Iowa. Um, you know, and so we got to hook Noah up with him to talk to him about and get a little advice. Absolutely. Man, that's it, what this whole thing's about, right?
2: Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like, we're going through the recruiting process right now. Uh, we've sent out his information to like a 100 – and 60-something schools already, and it's like, yeah. I mean, from, from what you guys seen on social media, I mean, I, I'm his dad, so I know a lot of guys are like, oh, you're just his dad, you're just talking him up. No, because if, if my son wasn't talented or anything like that, I'd just be like, yeah, he's just he's just playing just to play. But I, from other coaches and folks that do this as a living have said, that kid is going to go D1 somewhere. We just – you're just gonna have to wait it out. But like you said, it's all about knowing someone that has at least faith or have a set of eyes that would give that, that boy a chance somewhere, you know, just link him up somewhere, you know, yeah. whoever's listening out there, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like there's a lot of Lao athletes that are phenomenal athletes. They're out, young athletes are coming up, but we just don't know about. Just like the, you know, one kid from Alabama, you know, I, mean, I had no idea. Until you said something about it, It was just like that's incredible. His mom and everything else. And- we talk about
0: PamaChan. No, Alabama.
2: PamaChan and uh, was it Malachi? Malachi
0: Moore oh, from Alabama. Yeah. yeah, You got AJ Vonkuchan. You got, Von got uh, Noyce Calvinon. Right. We we didn't know these people existed. We just it, it, it's unbelievable.
2: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it gives us hope. Like, man, if he can do it, man, I imagine Noah and, and all his peers and this class and, you know, and all that to do the same thing as these kids as long as someone just say, you know what, I'm going to give you an opportunity. You
0: know? And then that's what it takes. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, David.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for coming on, man. Great, great amazing
2: story. Thank you. Thank you.
0: It's an honor. The C4 Podcast is brought to you by the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame. Visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com. Celebrating the first, inspiring the next.